Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture on this Memorial Day. Thank you for letting us be part of your holiday, and we hope it will be a good one and a safe holiday. Please be careful. Today, we'll be looking back at a very busy week last week with some of our recent interviews. But first, I just want to take a moment to thank all of our military personnel and their families for their sacrifice and service for our country. You know, our nation is certainly dealing with many serious issues right now, including several challenges facing our farmers and ranchers, such as flooding and delayed planting and, of course, a struggling ag economy. But on this important day, we need to make sure we pause and remember those who have sacrificed so much so we can enjoy, even with all the challenges, the freedoms we have in this country. Sadly, so often anymore, we tend to overlook the reason we observe our holidays. But today, let's make sure we remember and say thank you to those who have served, with many giving the ultimate sacrifice, and those who are currently serving to protect us and preserve our freedoms. We cannot thank them enough. Well, last week was a very busy week for agriculture, and although unfortunately much of the activity did not occur in the field, as many are still waiting for drier weather to start or resume their planting, still there were several significant events last week, including a lifting of duties on U.S. ethanol going into Europe, the lifting of metal tariffs on Canada and Mexico, and, of course, the announcement of another trade assistance package. We'll be replaying some of our recent interviews on those topics today. But first, we're going to take a look at soybean market development work going on all around the world. Now, while soybean trade with China remains disrupted due to the ongoing trade war, the U.S. Soybean Export Council is working hard to develop other markets for U.S. soy. I talked last week with Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, and he talked about that work that's going on around the world. That's for sure, Mike. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to chat with you this morning. You know, uh, last week we had really an exciting week. It was kind of exceptional in terms of how many events we conducted around the world. We had five different events on three different continents and had... 550 customers of soy, uh, you know, either current customers of U.S. soy or prospective customers of U.S. soy. Uh, We had uh, 30 different countries represented, and 25 U.S. export companies uh, were involved in those various events. And what what we're out talking about with people is the U.S. soy advantage. You know, the, uh, the, the quality of the crop that we have, and it really does have some intrinsic quality advantages, the amino acid profile, the energy content, and then, of course, the reliable infrastructure that we have uh, is something that's very important and is uh, second to none in terms of soybean suppliers in the world. And then finally, and it's becoming more and more important, the sustainability of U.S. soy. And that's thanks to all the great farmers we have that produce soy in such a uh, conservation-minded, uh, sustainable way. And I know we take it kind of for granted in this country, but it really is becoming more important to buyers around the world and their customers who want to know how their products are produced? Are they are they harming the environment as they as they 
as they purchase uh, things like soybeans. So, so we have a great message, and so we had a great opportunity, good opportunity, to talk about that with many people around the world last week. And we're out doing that, trying to do it every week. Uh, can't hit that many people every week, but trying to move these U.S. soybeans. Well, obviously, China is such a big focus. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what are some of the other key markets you're looking at that could uh, uh, could uh, be great opportunities for us to move soybeans to? Well, let me talk. I mean, so we have, of course, Europe has been a long-term customer, and we've really, our market share has really jumped with them this year. And we have places like Japan and Korea that have also been good, strong, long-term customers. Mexico and a few other South American, Latin American countries are really good customers. But let me just mention a few things that, a few that may not resonate with people or might not be the ones that come most top to mind. Think of Egypt, think of Pakistan, think of Bangladesh. All countries that have uh, relatively large populations, relatively low protein consumption today in terms of what their people eat, and uh, really rapidly growing economies, rapidly improving economies. And they're at that spot in their development where as people's income rises, they want to improve their diet. They want to eat a little bit more meat. They want to use a little more cooking oil. And that is really the sweet spot for soybean demand growth because we can help them produce more meat and we can help them have more cooking oil if they either import soybeans or import the constituents of soy. So so places like that are uh, are exciting for us. We've We've really it kind of changed our strategy or taken on a new part of our strategy, I would say, the last few years, even before the China issue came up, wanting to be working in more of these far-out developing markets. Uh, another one, for example, last week we had an event in Nigeria, our first USEC event in Nigeria. Uh, some other, uh, WISH, another part of the soy family, has been working there for a few years earlier, but we really we think they're ready now to go more mainstream in terms of the way that they use soy. Their poultry industry, we think, is set to grow rapidly. But that's a market that is hardly imports anything today. But we see in the future, given their population and their economics, that they could become another important buyer. So lots of non-traditional destinations that we are working with to be trying to uh, get U.S. soy moved to many markets around the world. All right, let's talk China. Uh, when it comes to soybeans, uh, with the African swine fever, the loss of so many hogs over there, it would seem to diminish the uh, the market for us selling soybean soy meal into China. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Uh, what are you hearing? Well, we're hearing that in, indeed total demand in total soybean demand into China will be down this year because of the African swine fever situation, and also I think in part because to China's efforts to minimize uh, protein demand when they were going through the first round of the trade war when. Uh, you know, when it was clear the U.S. wasn't, they were, they were not going to import anything from the U.S. So we think their demand will be down 5 or 7 million tons versus where it would have been uh, otherwise. And so like 86 million tons instead of 93 or 94 million tons uh, is, appears to us what the numbers are going to look like. The amount of that that comes from the U.S. is going to be very small. Um, you know, this marketing year to date, they've purchased about uh, 6 million tons from the U.S. They've actually shipped 6 million tons. They have a few more purchases on the books. But given the current state of play between China and the U.S., I question whether they will ship very many more of those purchases they actually have on the books. They might cancel those or something. So just to put that in perspective, last year we shipped, by this time in the marketing year, we had shipped uh, 26.5 million tons to China. This year we've only shipped six. Um, 
And that's kind of where I'm afraid, unless, uh, unless we get trade negotiations back on track, I'm afraid that might be where it, it'll end up somewhere close to that for the year. Uh, All right, Jim, thank you. Thank you for your time, and thank you. Thanks for the update, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you to see about these other markets that can help uh, pick up the slack of what we're losing with a key market like China. Thanks, Jim, for the update. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. All right, stay with us. More coming up here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. So we just talked with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Obviously, they are ecstatic that the uh, metal tariffs on Canada and Mexico have been lifted. We can talk about that as well with Colin Woodall for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Colin, this was looked at as a a must-have to get USMCA moving forward, and I know you at NCBA are happy to have uh, those tariffs lifted. We're extremely happy to see these tariffs lifted. Now, we're in a little bit different shape from our friends in the pork industry because they were really getting hammered with the tariffs. But we were also, though, however, really pushing to try to get these tariffs taken down because we knew if we wanted to have a chance of getting a vote on USMCA, the tariffs were going to have to be a part of this deal. So the fact that this is done uh, earlier is, I think, going to be overall very beneficial to uh, the process of getting a vote and finally passing USMCA and putting this chapter behind us. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Want to reduce your risk of heart disease, diabetes, and stroke? Simple. Eat right. This is registered dietitian nutritionist Melissa Dobbins. A healthy diet can mean a healthier you. So eat a variety of proteins each week. Seafood, lean meat, poultry, beans, and nuts. Fill half your plate with fruits and vegetables at every meal. Choose foods that are lower in calories, fat, and sodium. Limit your alcohol and maintain a healthy weight. Let a registered dietitian nutritionist help you achieve your goals. Find one near you at eatright.org. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. 
Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. U.S. agriculture celebrates the lifting of metal tariffs against Mexico and Canada. That includes the U.S. dairy industry, part of that celebration. Joining us now is Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Shauna, thank you for being with us. Tell us the impact of those tariffs on U.S. dairy exports. And now that they are are lifted, uh, give us an idea of what that now means moving forward for U.S. dairy producers. Well, thanks, Mike. Happy to be here today. We're absolutely elated that we finally have a resolution on this issue. The Mexican retaliatory tariffs on our cheese exports have been a heavy hang, uh, particularly in terms of companies' certainty with their most important export market in Mexico and the resulting flowback to farmers that have been forced to bear the brunt of 20 to 25 percent retaliatory tariffs on those products over the last uh, several months here since last summer. Uh, We also think that in addition to getting back to duty-free trade with our biggest foreign customer, we're really happy about the momentum that we think that helps to build for moving USMCA forward. There's a lot of dairy benefits in that agreement, and we're eager to see Congress work through the remaining issues that have been identified as key political priorities to try to get to a a positive approval of this in short order here. Yeah, lifting of these tariffs was seen as um, uh, critical towards getting USMCA passed, right? It It was hard to imagine it could pass without these tariffs being lifted. I think that's an excellent way to put it. There certainly were a number of leading and, and quite, uh, quite, quite most notably, I'd probably say, of course, Chairman Grassley of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, that were insistent that this was a, a need to need to get peace in order to get to a positive result. Uh, we recognize it's not the only one, and there's some other elements that need to fall into place here too that need some hard work, likewise. Uh, but certainly having this one tackled and out of the way is fantastic for our exports uh, and positive for the momentum and the direction that we hope USMCA will move in. So as we look at immediate impact on dairy exports to Mexico and Canada, you mentioned uh, the impact it has on being able to uh, move more U.S. cheese into Mexico, but it also when we look north to Canada, impacts uh, our sales of, of yogurt into that market, doesn't it? It does. Uh, that one probably has, has been certainly, a, I'd say, a smaller piece compared to the Mexico cheese slice of it. We export uh, roughly $2 million worth of yogurt uh, to Canada, and that had been subject to their retaliatory tariffs as well. Uh, just a benchmark for comparison. I think the reason that the Mexico slice has dominated mine so much more for dairy has been that that's in the neighborhood of about $400 million a year. Uh, but it's good to see both those pieces put to rest. We're talking with Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Uh, Shauna, as we look at USMCA and uh, the prospects of it passing Uh, Of course, dairy was such a big part of the negotiation of this deal, especially looking for improvements in the the trade situation with Canada. Uh, Refresh our memories. What's in USMCA that uh, the U.S. dairy industry feels 
while not maybe solving all the issues, at least as an improvement over what we have currently? I think the way you put it is exactly the way that we see it as well, as a plus up on what we have right now under NAFTA, which has been great for our trade with Mexico, but of course hasn't done very much in terms of opening up opportunities to the Canadian dairy market or dealing with some of the trade distorting policies that have been so problematic for our exports uh, as a result of what Canada does on that front on dairy. So the deal for us uh, takes a number of strides forward. Uh, Certainly on market access, there's an expansion of what the U.S. can ship duty-free under tariff rate quotas for a variety of different dairy products, so more than what we would have access to right now. Uh, Equally important, uh, if not even more so, I'd say, are the reforms and disciplines to Canadian dairy pricing policies that USMCA makes, and that was specifically in response to our industry's deep concerns about Canada's Class 7 pricing policy, the impact that was having not just on bilateral trade between us and Canada, but on Canada's dumping of milk powder exports onto global markets. And then the last piece that's really dairy-focused in this agreement and a good step forward was a new precedent established with Mexico through one of the side letters to the deal, providing assurances about our ability to continue to ship a wide variety of commonly named cheese products, things like mozzarella, provolone, cheddar, and others. And that's really aimed at countering European Union efforts to restrict our ability to ship cheeses and compete head-to-head with them. So we think that's a great model to build from in other trading partner markets moving forward as well. And we cannot stress enough the importance of exports um, to agriculture in general, but the dairy industry in particular, especially as the industry is going through a a very down uh, time right now uh, and producers really struggling. Exports really a big part of moving out of that situation and to better times. They absolutely are. Uh, Last year we exported 16% of our milk production in the form of different dairy products that were sold to markets around the world. Uh, And as you said, it's really a critical element in being able to help pull farmer prices back in the right direction. Uh, We certainly saw that work the opposite way last year uh, when it seemed like uh, the the clouds were parting and we were beginning to see prices trending uh, back where we'd like them to go only to see the retaliatory tariffs hit in a double whammy uh, from Mexico and then shortly thereafter from China. So having one of those solved and off the decks is a big weight off of that uh, price pressure. Uh, And certainly the China resolution will remain a big priority for us as well, given how important that market is for dairy exporters. And give us an update on the tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs that are in place now, how that's impacting our dairy exports to China. Well, thanks for that. Our dairy exports, unfortunately, have taken a very sizable hit to China while the retaliatory tariffs have been in effect. Uh, China's two waves of retaliation that were imposed last year collectively cover virtually all dairy products that we ship uh, at tariff levels that, uh, retaliatory tariff levels that go up to 25% at our highest levels. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, just by way of example, We saw our exports drop uh, for dairy export volumes by over 40%, while dairy exports from a number of other exporters, uh, so collectively China's imports actually grew by double digits. So it's clear that China's market's still growing. They're still dairy hungry and need even more year over year, but it's other suppliers that are benefiting from that at our expense. 
Uh, we're keen to see a resolution to these issues so that we can uh, move forward and export more product again to China uh, and see a number of the problems that have been identified in the discussions with China dealt with positively. And with talks uh, starting up with Japan, what is the potential of that market for U.S. dairy producers? Japan's already a top market for us. And so when we look at the prospects of an FTA, I'd rank that as right, uh, right at the top of the list in terms of the most important new free trade agreement partner that the U.S. could secure. We're very strongly supportive of the administration's pursuit of that deal. Uh, we're looking, like many others in agriculture, at ensuring that we don't slide backward over the next few years. Key competitors, Europe and New Zealand and Australia, have their own FTAs in place now with Japan and are beginning to phase in the benefits of those. That's going to give us a run for our money uh, as the years move on here in not too short order. Uh, we want to make sure that negotiations are focused on uh, referencing what Japan's already done in those prior trade treaties and then looking for areas where we can really go above and beyond that to make sure that we're competitive and have preferential access to such a large dairy importing market. So that's already a good market for us. So two goals there is to maintain what we have and then hopefully even increase market share in Japan. Absolutely. Are we? How much of a disadvantage are we? You mentioned those other trade agreements. We're not in TPP, and these other countries have deals. How much of a disadvantage does that put us in Japan? Even though we're already, we are doing good business there. Uh, how much more could we possibly do? It varies right now, product by product, uh, since there's so many different dairy tariff uh, types of dairy products that are covered by the terms of the FTA treaty. I'd say right now our exporters are at a slight disadvantage, you know, a couple percentage points or so, give or take. Uh, the real concern is if we're not moving very quickly to bridge that gap uh, and then teeing up the timeline of when our treaty needs to take effect, that those gaps become wider and wider uh, so that by the five-year mark it's clear we're at a very sizable disadvantage uh, and losing a large chunk of our market share in the process. On the other hand, uh, there's expectations that Japan will continue to grow, uh, particularly for cheese needs. It's an, been an okay. expanding market and still an expectation for more potential on the upside in the years to come. All right. Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Thank you, Shauna, for joining us on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Keeping up on the latest in ag is a challenge to say the least, but there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic, grain, and energy solutions born of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Hi, I'm Greg Peterson of the Peterson Farm Brothers. If you've seen our videos, you know we're proud to be farmers. Farming can be dangerous. Never assume location or depth of underground utilities or pipelines. Before you start any work on your farm, call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com to have underground lines located. It only takes a minute and can save your life. 
Never assume the location or depth of underground lines. Always call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com before you start work. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. The grain and oil seed sector has continued to rally amid some of the worst delays to U.S. planting on record. Chicago corn futures have led the way, gaining 4.8% last week, and July hitting 4 bucks a bushel for the first time in just under a year. Traders will receive the next batch of planting data from USDA on Tuesday. With soggy conditions hindering field work across the Corn Belt, market participants expect little progress to have been made. Money managers still holding large bets against agricultural markets, so evidence that farmers are even further behind schedule could lead to further short squeezes, rapid rallies as investors unwind short positions. For livestock, June and July hog futures at the Merck were limit down on Friday. Traders saying that investment funds, unimpressed by the volume of U.S. exports heading to China, were liquidating their short positions ahead of the long weekend. If the weather forecast improves over the weekend, we could see selling on the open Monday night. But if the weather does not improve, the Monday evening opening could be quite interesting. The markets are closed today for Memorial Day. On Friday's session, heading into the weekend, July soybeans were up eight and a quarter at eight twenty-nine and three quarters. July corn up fourteen and a half, four oh four and a quarter. Chicago wheat July up nineteen and a quarter at four eighty-nine and a half. Clean hogs June down three dollars on Friday, eighty-six forty-two. Live cattle June thirty-seven cents higher ahead of the weekend at one eleven seventeen. Back months twenty-five to thirty-five lower. Feeder cattle, August contract up 20 at 143.22. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we do have some good trade news. The uh, European Commission recently decided not to renew anti-dumping duties on European Union imports of U.S. ethanol. And here to talk about it is Mike Dwyer, Chief Economist for the U.S. Grains Council. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, This is an important decision, right? I mean, this could open up uh, the Europe uh, uh, market to more U.S. ethanol products? 
Absolutely. The, uh, the anti-dumping duties that have been in place for the last five years have essentially tacked on a penalty tariff of 9.5% on what is already a 20-plus percent tariff rate. So, uh, yeah, it made it really difficult to compete. Uh, interestingly enough, um, last year we exported 109, uh, 110 million gallons of ethanol to the EU, uh, and this comes this makes it our fourth largest market and comes despite these penalties, which really goes to show how competitive American ethanol is around the world right now. We are by far the lowest cost source of ethanol, uh, bioethanol anywhere. And if we were getting in with this much volume before, uh, a 9.5% reduction in the tariff will only make it easier to export to Europe. Now, having said that, I will say Europe is increasingly acting as a reshipment point throughout Africa and the Middle East. So American ethanol will go into the EU and get re-exported into regions outside the community. But according to the USDA's recent report, a fair amount of U.S. ethanol was actually not only coming into Europe, but actually penetrating and going in uh, to the, the fuel market in Europe to be blended with gasoline and sold to motorists. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's all good news. I mean, if we were getting in with this much before, uh, imagine the advantages that uh, another 9.5% reduction essentially in the price will be for, for our competitiveness. Mike, I think a lot of times when we talk trade issues, uh, people overlook the importance of these issues when it comes to ethanol. And I've tried to point that out with the China situation, uh, that th- this is huge for the U.S. ethanol industry to get some kind of a deal done and get that market opened up. There is this growing worldwide demand for ethanol, and we're sitting here as the supplier of ethanol if we can just get some of these trade issues uh, straightened out. Well, trade issues straightened out, you're right. Well, we've got a, a multitude of these we're simultaneously facing, and it takes a fair amount of my time at the U.S. Greens Council to deal with them. Um, but we're really in the business of finding the next dollar worth of exports, the market development business, and it is really what uh, over half of our program is devoted to, which is explaining the benefits of clean you know, corn ethanol to buyers around the world and, and, and trying to create demand that doesn't exist now. There's just so much misinformation out there, Mike, on, on, you know, some people say it's good for the climate, some say it's bad. The science is overwhelmingly supportive of the role of uh, ethanol. And if it's U.S. ethanol, it comes at a discount to consumers. Most countries over-support this sector, and it ends up being a premium. In other words, it actually adds to the price of fuel, but not if you use U.S. ethanol because of the big discount to, to gasoline and to the aromatics and MTBE that's in a lot of people's gas. So, um, and it may seem a little bit technical, but, you know, we have a dual challenge, growing demand, number one, and then making sure we have access to the demand. And it is a full-time job for the four people at the Grains Council. Uh, the rest of the Grains Council is pitching in as well. we got our officers around the world right now becoming quick studies in the energy market. You know, we're, we're, we're experts in the animal feed market, but we have changed uh, the DNA. The whole council has shifted in the last four years. And we're hitting it in 40 countries right now. we got programs in 40 different markets. It is truly a global effort. We've got RFA and Growth Energy at our side, so we're going and doing a lot of great things together. That's interesting. We're talking with Mike Dwyer, Chief Economist for the U.S. Grains Council. Interesting to hear how there at the council you are really getting uh, making that switch more in, into the uh, the ethanol market potential and working on that market development. There is this... Um, I think spurring this demand, right, is the uh, the goal and the efforts to achieve cleaner air. 
uh, cleaner air and reduce carbon emissions. And we didn't sign the Paris Agreement, but every other country in the world did. And I remind them of that when they say, well, you guys didn't even sign the agreement. I said, but you did. Now what are you going to do to actually realize these carbon reductions? One of the easiest things any country can do is blend ethanol. It, it yields significant carbon reductions uh, in the emission side and is really not a big lift. There's not very little infrastructure investment involved. And once again, trying to deal with all the misinformation that's out there is really a major part of what this job is all about. But we are resonating 18.5% a year compound growth over the last five years. Makes ethanol the fastest growing U.S. agricultural export over the last five years. So uh, we must be doing something right. Yeah, now you talked about the, the all these markets you're working in. T- uh, give us an idea of some of them that hold a, the, uh, the most uh, immediate potential. Uh, China. Uh, if we could get past this trade uh, uh, dispute uh, with China, that market is prime. We have spent the last four years explaining what E10 could do for them. They bought in completely. They've sent their officials to the U.S., courtesy of the U.S. Grains Council. We brought them in. We showed them everything we're doing. We gave them advice on policy development and the secret sauce of ethanol mandates is enforcement. The only countries that do it right are those that enforce it. And they have now bought into that, and they're willing to import considerable volumes in order to hit their E10 target. And so we're looking at a a potential billion-gallon market probably within the next two to three years. I mean, a wow, billion gallons so. just China. We're only exporting 1.6 to the whole world right now, and that's a record. So you're talking, you know, nothing to China today, up to maybe a billion gallons in two to three years. Probably the market that we have our, 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 our sights set on immediately for the short-term future. Mexico, another great possibility. Uh, that's a potential 1.2 billion gallon market if they blend E10, which the country appears to be moving that way. I mean, I, I could go on and on opportunities for us. That's why we're in 40 different countries, to make sure we hit it hard. Yeah, and you know, we talk a lot about the challenges here to get uh, uh, a greater share of the ethanol market in the U.S. Uh, you know, in some places, you know, we look at these other countries around the world. Are they more open uh, to uh, ethanol than even the some of the things we're dealing with here in the U.S.? I mean, that it's ironic to me that some other countries, it'd be easier maybe to uh, sell ethanol into and get ethanol use into than here in the U.S. Well, in some cases it is. I mean, the E15, most of the industry is excited about what year-round E15 availability will mean over the next three to five years. So we're big proponents of the domestic market. But we actually think over the next five years the export market has probably – a better future. Uh, it will contribute more to corn grind than the growth in the domestic market. Um, and once again, it's just a simple matter of explaining the economics uh, and, the, and the benefits of ethanol blending to these other countries. And it, you don't just do it in your first trip there. Mm-hmm. It takes multiple engagements uh, of scientific exchanges, bringing their folks back here, bringing our folks over there. Um, but it's working. Uh, Japan is going to be a 100 million gallon market this year. If it wasn't for uh, the active involvement we've had there trying to convince their officials that U.S. ethanol is green enough for their taste, and they've now bought into that. We're now going to sell them 100 million gallons. It would not happen had it not been for the involvement, our involvement in that market. You know, I, I so find that fascinating. I talk a lot yeah. about, you know, all this about the green movement here in the U.S. and looking for new fuels and things. 
uh, it's frustrating that some of our own leaders here in this country refuse to see we have a green fuel uh, supply system already in place here, and they should be embracing it. Yeah, I think uh, we're just part of a larger energy revolution in this country. I mean, we all know about, you know, what's going on in the, in the fields, you know, fracking of oil, new exploration technologies that are making us a force to be reckoned with in the petroleum market. But simultaneously with that development, the same thing happened in renewable fuels. So we consider ourselves another energy product just made from an agricultural feedstock with carbon reduction benefits as a kicker and clean air benefits as a kicker. So, yeah, I mean, our job is basically just getting to the right people and giving them the right message, the message that it's clean, it can uh, address their most of the markets we're dealing with, air quality is near toxic levels. And one of the quickest things they can do is stop adding to the problem because the reason they're in the mess that they're in is their, their fuel is not a clean fuel at all. Uh, heavy emissions of, of all kinds of, like, benzene, the aromatics are loaded with carcinogenic products. We explain that to them. And if you can get a solution to that and actually spend less money on the finished fuel, I mean, that's just, you know, gravy. And, Mike, unlike a lot of other products that we sell, there there aren't, aren't a lot of competitors out there, right? I mean, we're the big supplier of ethanol. We are. 61% of world trade in ethanol is American corn ethanol. So basically six out of every 10 gallons traded around the world originate in the U.S. That's an amazing market share in just like the last seven years. It's gone from like 10% to 61% of world trade, and we have displaced the Brazilians as number one. They're our largest market. We're their largest market. We trade with each other. We're increasingly collaborating with each other for the greater good of building a global ethanol market, and I recently spent some time with that industry in New York City. And I think we're going to be doing it a lot more together going forward instead of just going it alone. Um, ethanol is a molecule. It doesn't matter what the feedstock is. It's the exact same performance. The only difference is the carbon profile, and our product's getting greener every year, and the price. And ours is you, no one was within 20% of us in price. And with that as a tailwind, as we go around developing markets, we don't have to push American ethanol. We just need to push ethanol. And then when they say, where's the cheapest product to be had, we say, you know, by 20% cheaper. So we're like the Saudi Arabia of the ethanol market. That's right. It's a huge opportunity and, and a story that uh, I don't think we uh, talk about nearly enough. Mike, thanks for giving us an update. Uh, I think exciting potential, exciting news there. Thank you very much. Sure. My pleasure. Mike Dwyer, Chief Economist for the U.S. Grains Council. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, 
manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit StandUpToCancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, U.S. agriculture celebrates the lifting of metal tariffs against Mexico and Canada. That includes the U.S. dairy industry, part of that celebration. Joining us now is Shauna Morris, Vice President, Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Tell us the impact of those tariffs on U.S. dairy exports. And now that they are, are lifted, give us an idea of what that now means moving forward for U.S. dairy producers. We're absolutely elated that we finally have a resolution on this issue. The Mexican retaliatory tariffs on our cheese exports have been a heavy hang, particularly in terms of companies' certainty with their most important export market in Mexico and the resulting slowback to farmers that have been forced to bear the brunt of 20 to 25 percent retaliatory tariffs on those products over the last uh, several months here since last summer. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to really cook. First, you can't tell it's done by how it looks. Use a food thermometer. Then, always stir, rotate the dish, and cover food when microwaving to prevent cold spots where bacteria can survive. 
fast cooking should still be safe cooking. And bring sauces, soups, and gravies to a rolling boil when reheating. Even for the most experienced cooks, the improper heating and preparation of food means bacteria can survive. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Joining us now with reaction to the latest trade assistance package from a soybean perspective is the CEO of the American Soybean Association, Ryan Finley. Ryan, thanks for joining us. USDA certainly took a different approach this time, and uh, they seem to have done a pretty good job decoupling uh, this program uh, to keep it from influencing planting decisions, although they've left a lot of questions about uh, the county rate, what it will be, and when we'll get it, and things like that. So uh, what's your first reaction to the, the announcement? Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on. And the initial reaction is I'm going to say mixed, and not mixed in a bad way, just mixed in the sense that last year, when we saw the market facilitation program, this trade assistance assistance package rolled out, we knew it was going to be on production in 2018. It was what you harvested. There was a set amount per bushel that you were going to receive based on the commodity. And so while there were challenges with that, there was also a simplicity to it that everybody understood and we were good to go. And now this is the market facilitation program 2.0. And, and as the trade war continues to impact agriculture in a really severe way and, and the ag economy is suffering big time right now this this plan's coming out and it's not as straightforward and i think there were some elements where they tried to make sure farmers did not plant to the program they wanted to make sure some of the inequity that they had last year of product that wasn't harvested or that that couldn't be harvested was addressed And so they tried to clean up some of that, and and what we're getting is the MFP, or Market Facilitation Program 2.0 for 2019, that is going to be based on a county payment. We're trying to understand what the formula is to do that, but USDA, I think, is still working through what all of that is going to look like. So we we do know it won't be commodity-specific, which is really good because farmers don't need to plant to – the government program they should plant what the market is, is telling them to do for for their area of course one of the criticisms of the last round was that it was too heavily in favor of your commodity soybeans so it kind of feels like they had that criticism in mind going into this to try to make it more spread out and more uh, equitable across commodities yeah i think Sometimes we get into this commodity dispute a little bit of, well, how much was soybeans getting and how much was another commodity getting? At the end of the day, it's agriculture. So we're all, we're all hurting right now. I'm gonna, I would argue all day long that soybeans are at the tip of the spear when it comes to China and the trade war that we have with China. I mean, before we were sending $14 billion worth of soybeans to China, it's a fraction of that today. So it is severe what, what soybean farmers 
are experiencing right now. But soybean farmers don't just grow soybeans. They grow a lot of other commodities. And so when we say we're going to pit one commodity against another, you know, that was a conversation that wasn't healthy in agriculture. We didn't need that. But I think that there were some, there is some legitimacy to if you have that type of program at this point in the year, on a year like we're having in 2019, it could definitely influence some, some decisions. And so USDA came out and said, look, we're, we're going to do this county um, payment program, and, uh, and so it's not going to influence what you plant. And, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit, but then we, bit, we raised this question of prevented plant, which would not be covered under this um, market facilitation program. And our understanding is because the Commodity Credit Corporation requires you to have an interest in the commodity. So you actually have to grow it or have something growing. Otherwise, we can't use the CCC funds for that. Also, they had to look at what would stand withstand a WTO challenge, and I've seen some uh, uh, analysis saying they think this, the way it's uh, being structured, would withstand a WTO challenge. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of conversation about that, and I think we are a long time away from figuring out. You know, within the WTO, there are there are payments that are okay, and then there are these amber box payments, and we can only have so many um, dollars that are that fit within this amber box before it can be challenged at the WTO level. There's also just pure, you know, you, you can't do some things, and, and so that could get challenged at the WTO. I think that's going to work itself out over the next couple of years, uh, and, and I'm going to give credit to USDA to say, we have a problem right now, and we have to figure out a, a fair and equitable way to get that out the door that's not going to disrupt planning intentions, and, and I think they're doing a pretty good job at it. Meanwhile, Congress finally comes through with a disaster package. <laughs> yeah, yesterday was almost a little overshadowed. I mean, we heard about it late in the day, and everybody was excited on the Hill about the disaster package, but there was also a lot of media fixation on yesterday's MFP payment and the press um, uh, gaggle that the president did with a number of farmers in the room, which was, was a great experience for those commodity groups that were able to participate and the farmers that were there. But, yeah, on the other side of Pennsylvania, we had the, the Senate working on a, a disaster package. That's going to be great for a number of farmers. And I say it's going to be great because it's going to address hurricanes, it's going to address flooding, it's going to address some fires, it's going to address some of the challenges that – farmers have experienced the last couple of years. But if you were going to ask me a specific at this point, I think we're still trying to figure out what exactly was in that Senate package. But to use a now often used phrase, phrase uh, we need uh, trade and not aid, right? There's, I'm glad you said that because at the end of the day, um, you know, the disaster package aside, because there, there was some pain that was felt that, uh, needed to be addressed, but the market facilitation program is really a secondary thing. Farmers do not want to see managed trade. We don't want to see any of these programs that, that are out there right now because we would rather see a market that we had with China before, a market where it was going to be based on fundamentals and when there was a demand they were going to purchase. So that's what we want to get back to. All right, Ryan, thank you for being with us. We'll talk more about this when we get more details. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Take care. 
Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Thank you for joining us. Have a very safe holiday, and thanks for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. 